Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is Friday. It is 9.20 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 21st of October, 2022, and this is episode 633 of Bitcoin. And Hoddle and Ott has won his court case against the fraud that is Craig Wright. I don't know if that means that we are now freely able to, depending no matter what your jurisdiction is, to call him a fraud out in public. Honestly, to tell you the truth, I think we just need to let Craig just Go the fuck away. Just go away, Craig. Just go away. We don't need to be giving him any energy at this point. However, I do want to read this one from Coindesk. Um, It's written by Cheyenne Ligon, Jack Schickler, and Nicholas Day. Headline, Hodelinot wins Norwegian lawsuit against self-proclaimed Satoshi Craig Wright. Now, I gotta, I gotta replace... Uh, a lot of names here with Hodelinot. Why? Because for whatever reason, Coindesk thought it was just okay to continuously give Hodelinot's real name. I'm not going to do it. All right. So it may be choppy, but here we go. Hodelinot, known on Twitter as Hodelinot, won a lawsuit against Craig Wright on Thursday, a judge in Norway ruled. Yes, they began this entire piece, guys. They began this entire piece with Hoddle and Knott's actual fucking name. That is not cool. I don't know why Coindesk felt that it was in anybody's interest whatsoever to actually continuously use his name, but it's not right. I really wish the guys over at Coindesk would have said, you know what, we're not going to do this, but they didn't. Hodelinot sued Wright in Norway to try and preempt a defamation suit Wright planned to bring against <clears throat> Hodelinot in the UK, where defamation laws are heavily tipped in favor of the plaintiff and monetary damages can be enormous. At the center of both cases is a series of tweets written by Hodelinot. They're using his real name every single time here, guys. In March 2019, in which he called Wright, who has long claimed and failed to prove that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous inventor of Bitcoin, a fraud and a scammer. Hodelinot asked the Norwegian court to rule that his tweets were protected by the freedom of speech, therefore preventing Wright from pursuing damages in relation to the tweets. Quote, the result was as expected. Hodelinot told Coindesk, I am very happy and thankful for all the support, end quote. Wright's attorneys told Coindesk he would appeal the ruling and warn that anonymous online bullying could have a chilling effect on public discourse. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you asshole. After a weeks-long trial in Oslo in September, District Court Judge Helen Engbritsen found in favor of Hodelinot ordering him acquitted of all claims for compensation and not liable for damages relating to the tweets. 
Wright has also been ordered to pay Hodelinot's legal fees in the amount of $383,000 U.S. The judge ruled that Hodelinot's use of the words such as fraud and scammer to describe Wright were fair. Let's read that one again. The judge ruled that Hodelinot's use of words such as fraud and scammer to describe Craig Wright were fair. Quote, the court believes that fraud, fraudulently, in this context means one who is something other than what he claims to be. Fake has a similar meaning, illegitimate, false, something other than what he pretends to be, the judge wrote. Scammer must be understood the same way in the sense of swindler or cheater, end quote. <laughs> We're freaking harsh, man. Hodlinot's lawyer, can't pronounce the dude's name, appeared positive about the outcome, though he said he would review it further. Quote, we note that the court has agreed with our arguments and our client's position in the case, and we are, of course, happy with that, he said in an emailed statement. The judge wrote that the evidence presented by Wright's lawyers was, quote, not suitable to change the court's prevailing opinion that Craig Wright is not Satoshi Nakamoto, end quote. Wright's lack of evidence that he is Satoshi has been an issue in his other trials, including a recent defamation case he brought against podcaster Peter McCormick in the United Kingdom. A judge found Wright to have submitted false evidence and awarded him one single pound, British pound sterling, in damages. Forensic and an analyst hired by Hodlinot poured over documents previously supplied by Wright, which purported to prove he had been the author of the Bitcoin white paper, but which included discrepancies, such as the inclusion of fonts not available at the time. Quote, both KPMG on behalf of Huddle and Not and BDO on behalf of Wright have found that these documents contain at best unexplained changes, which are likely to have been made after the date the documents are claimed to be from, the judgment said. Given the lack of cryptographic proof available at the time, quote, the court believes that Hodlinot had sufficient factual grounds to claim that Craig Wright is not Satoshi Nakamoto back in March of 2019, the judge said, quote, Wright has come out with a controversial claim and must withstand criticism from dissenters, she added, concluding that Hodlinot's statements were lawful, not defamatory. The judge also appeared to take up the idea that Twitter is a naturally rough and tumble environment where users should have a thick skin. <laughs> After Huddle and Knott's lawyers noted that Wright had also tweeted strong words such as cuck and soy boy. Quote, Wright himself uses coarse slang and derogatory references and so, in the court's view, must accept that others use similar jargon against him, the judgment said. Halvor Manchus, Wright's lawyer, told Coindesk that the legal team does not agree with the court's assessment, that Hoddle and Ott's communications were not in a legal sense defamatory or privacy breaching, and said the Twitter user breached the commonly accepted threshold of decency, whatever the fuck that is. Private citizens should enjoy the same protection on Twitter as on other media platforms, Manchus said. Quote, anonymous online bullying and harassment risks have a chilling effect on meaningful debate and the civil exchange of views and opinions. Individuals should not be dissuaded from seeking the challenge, uh, persistent and pervasive online mistreatment or intimidation. 
Yeah, that's rights lawyer. That's the, the end of the article. Uh, although I am going to read the three points that were made as the conclusion of judgment. But before I do that, and they're real short, before I do that, private citizens should enjoy the same protection on Twitter as other media platforms. Anonymous bullying online and harassment risks having a chilling effect on meaningful debate and the civil exchange of views and opinions. What Craig did was exactly that, except it wasn't anonymous. It was flat out, here I am, online bullying. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, it had a chilling effect from almost all, on all Bitcoiners that do not live in jurisdictions with a high preponderance of value placed on free speech like the United States. Yes, we have our own chilling effects here. If you're in another country and you kind of guffawed at that, I get it. But I'm calling Craig Wright a fraud and there's not a fucking thing he can do about it. There's nothing he can do about it. I'm an American citizen. I live in the United States. I'm afforded protection of my free speech in the United States. And Craig Wright, the fraud that he is, can go suck an egg. I, I have that protection, right? Many people in the UK and other countries, they do not. You know, basically like Eastern Europe is, or at, well, all of Europe, you know, honestly, no. Turkey, no. India, no. China, <laughs> no. Pick half of the African uh, countries on the African continent, no. Australia, probably, well, a little bit better, but it's, it's, getting, it's getting kind of dicey. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I got interrupted there for a second. Anyway, I'm just saying that the very statement that Wright's lawyer said about online bullying and, quote, a chilling effect is exactly what their client did, right? So there's no protection there. And he didn't get anything from the Norway court except slapped with a 4,053,750, I guess, kroner, which is like the, you know, the $380,000 or whatever in US. But anyway, the conclusion of the judgment is Hodel Anot is acquitted of claims for compensation. Hodel Anot is not liable for damages as a result of the statements to which the case relates. Craig Wright is sentenced to replace Hodel Anot's case cost for the district court with NOK, which is the, I guess, the Norwegian kroner. In either event, this part is over. He's going to appeal. I don't really know on what grounds he can appeal unless he introduces a completely new set of forgeries that are much better, you know, I don't know, forged than the last shit. Anyway, so that's done for now. However, the BSV network is suffering empty block mining attacks, and apparently this is ongoing. Now, this was back from uh, last Thursday. Andrew Thorvalis is writing it for Crypto Potato. Uh, Bitcoin SV is getting bogged down after a majority hash power began mining blocks that don't include any transactions. <laughs> this is all happening at the same time Craig is losing his court case against HODL and not. I love it. In response to the event, the Bitcoin Association has contacted all relevant exchanges to freeze the block rewards associated with the attack. As told by Todd Price, a curriculum specialist for the Bitcoin Association, most Bitcoin SV blocks currently don't include any transactions. By contrast, the network's mempool has become filled with millions of unprocessed transfers. 
Quote, this can cause issues for the various services in the ecosystem as they may not have allocated enough RAM for persisting a mempool of such size. Pausing to remind everybody, this is why we didn't go big blocks. This, well, this is one of the reasons. This is ex one of the exact reasons that everybody from Peter Todd to Luke Dash Jr. were warning about. Luke Dash Jr. actually wanted a block size decrease to 300K instead of 1.4 megabytes, right? And people laughed at his ass. And I don't know if they're laughing so far. I still don't think we should go down to 300K, but I certainly don't think we should increase the blocks. Anyway, an empty block attack occurs when miners deliberately choose not to include transactions in the blocks that they process, slowing down the network for users. While any miner on any proof-of-work network can choose to do this, it won't have a substantial impact on network performance unless a large, centralized majority of hash power colludes for the attack. It's also economically irrational to conduct as the miner loses out on profiting, profiting from transaction fees. Furthermore, Price argued that mining empty blocks violates the unilateral contract that miners are expected to uphold with users. Part of that contract, he said, is to broadcast all transactions to all nodes. Quote, while the contract is not defined in a single text document, there are several pieces which together can be construed as aspects of a contractual relationship. That's not how this works, guys. The, the white paper as the technical manifesto for the Bitcoin protocol is one such component. Despite not reaping transaction fee revenues, miners are still entitled to the fixed block subsidy attached to each empty block. Even on the main Bitcoin network, block subsidies account for the vast majority of revenues that keep miners up and running. As such, the Bitcoin Association's call for exchanges to freeze the attacker's blocks rewards is meant to choke off the miner's source of strength. In effect, this means the attacker won't be able to cash out his earnings. If the attacker continues, he will be forced to pay the implicit energy costs of mining without any of its standard rewards. Bitcoin SV has suffered 51% attacks in the past due to its relatively low security, allowing some transactions to be reversed. The Bitcoin network uh, faces far less risk of an empty block attack or 51% attack due to the cost and competitiveness of its, eco of its mining ecosystem. So... Bitcoin SV, the darling child that was split off from Bitcoin Cash, which itself was split off from the actual real Bitcoin, is Craig's little baby and it's just basically getting its ass handed to him at the same time that he is getting his ass handed to him by a Norwegian judge who will probably, Norwegian uh, court will probably also hand Craig his ass if he tries to appeal. I'm not sure what is to be gained at that point other than trying to save face, but he's just going to waste a whole bunch of money. But, you know, screw him. Now, $9 billion European digital bank N26 has enabled Bitcoin trading. This is from Bitcoin Magazine and Sean Amick. N26, a $9 billion European digital bank, is launching Bitcoin and cryptocurrency trading services per report from CNBC. N26 Crypto, the bank's newly formed service, is set to roll out to Austrian clients over the next few weeks and initially include Bitcoin and a number of shitcoins. Following its initial release, N26 plans to expand its service offering to clients in other markets over the course of the next six months. However, users looking to leverage N26 service, services should note that the bank does not support custodial wallet transfers, meaning users will not be able to move their Bitcoin off the platform. 
That's what we call capture. Don't do it. But everything's good for Bitcoin. Moreover, users looking to buy Bitcoin on the platform will simply need to access their online account, click Bitcoin, and the necessary cash for the transaction will be deducted from the user's main account. N26 clients will also be able to move funds interchangeably between their main accounts and their digital asset portfolio. The bank is charging a 2.5% fee on buy and sell orders for all cryptocurrencies. However, clients looking to trade in Bitcoin will only pay a 1.5% fee. Additionally, if the client is signed up for N26's Metal subscription account, the fee for cryptocurrencies drops to 2% while the fee for trading Bitcoin drops to 1%. The functionality for crypto trading services is being provi provided, no, sorry, provided by Bitpanda, an Austrian, Austrian cryptocurrency and stock trading app that is backed by Peter Thiel. Well, there you go. Like I said, everything is kind of good for Bitcoin, uh, but honestly, do you really need this service? You know, if you're in Austria, there's, there's several other ways that you can get lay your hands on Bitcoin. Um, but if you choose to do this, you need to recognize that you cannot move your Bitcoin. This is a fully 100% custodial service. So what's the end game? What, I mean, if you can't move your Bitcoin, then they lock you into just trade, what, trading for alpha? I, I mean, just gonna like what, buy and sell and buy and sell and, you know, hope to God that you have enough intelligence and i'm not talking about like brain power i'm talking about like you know reports of what the fed is doing and what the european markets are doing and you're collating all that shit so that you can try to buy the bottom of bitcoin and sell the top because they sure as shit ain't gonna let you move your bitcoin into a wallet that you can just or or let you just pay somebody in bitcoin is that doesn't sound anything like what it's going to be who knows? Maybe they will let you buy goods and services in Bitcoin, but you won't be able to custody it yourself. And that's a, that's a huge deal. Because if these guys go bankrupt, let's just say these guys go bankrupt, all right? And you in the United States, generally speaking, a company that goes bankrupt, their assets, even if they're held by, you know, promissory notes by other people, like, hey, I you know, I'm, I'm holding this with, with your company. These are assets. Those assets can get sold off to benefit the primary people that need to get paid off first when a bankruptcy occurs. So the big creditors get their paycheck. The little creditors, no, they don't get their paycheck, right? So in, I don't know how the Austrians do their stuff when it comes to bankruptcy. I have to admit that. But Generally speaking, Western Europe kind of follows a lot of the same structures that U.S. law and bankruptcy does. It may be different enough that you can get your Bitcoin back, but I, I honestly don't, don't do that, okay? Please don't do that. Now, this one is really kind of, ups, not upsetting, but you should take note. Uzbeki police get, quote, how to seize crypto, end quote, training from United Nations Security Organization. David Atlee, Cointelegraph. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe organized a five-day training course on cryptocurrencies and dark web investigation for Uzbekistan's police and prosecution forces. 
The course is a part of OSCE's consistent efforts to educate Central Asian law enforcers on the emerging technologies that criminals might use or abuse in a strategically important region for the global drug trade. As the official press release from October 21st goes, representatives from the General Prosecutor's Office, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and the State Security Service attended the training from October 17th to the 21st to learn about the main concepts and key trends in the areas of internetworking, anonymity and encryption, cryptocurrencies, obfuscation techniques, dark web, and the Tor networks. The enforcers became acquainted with methods for seizing cryptocurrency and blockchain analysis developed by the European Cybercrime Training and Education Group. The OSCE has even donated a new computer classroom to the General Prosecutors Academy. The course became the first national training in Uzbekistan delivered within the second phase of the, quote, capacity building on combating cybercrime in Central Asia extra budgetary project, which is funded by the United States, Germany, and the Republic of Korea. National training activities will continue across the region throughout 2022 and 2023. In 2020, OSC has also conducted a training program on crypto enforcement for Central Asian countries. Back then, the scope of participating enforcers was much larger with representatives from Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Mongolia attending it in the city of Almaty. In August, the government of, of Uzbekistan, which had previously made significant steps toward a moderate approach to crypto, restricted access to a number of large international crypto exchanges, including Binance, FTX, and Huobi, due to accusations of unlicensed activities. The OSCE is the world's largest regional security-oriented intergovernmental organization with observer status at the United Nations. Based in Vienna, it focuses on issues such as arms control, promotion of human rights, freedom of the press, and free and fair elections, which is all 100% bullshit. But be that as it may, what did we just learn? Well, we learned that the UN is teaching people how to steal people's cryptocurrency. How do you combat against that? You don't hold it on N26 custodial exchange is one way that you don't do that. What's another way you don't do it? You don't hold your Bitcoin on Coinbase. You don't hold your Bitcoin on Kraken and Kraken, we'll get to Kraken here in a second. They're being stupid. The only way to not have your Bitcoin seized is cold storage. There's, there's no other way. I've got like, a, you know, a few hundred dollars on Cash App right now. I, I color that gone. Why am I not draining it into my, into my cold storage? Because there's not enough on there yet for me to really worry about it. Hey, if I lose a couple of hundred bucks, whoop-de-doo. But if it gets up to like, you know, <laughs> a couple of thousand or something like that, well, that's a different story. That, that needs to be swept into cold storage. But as long as it's on custodial exchanges, you need to just figure out that you should be good with losing it all. Because the UN is teaching police how to take it from you, find out that it's yours, and never give it back. See, that's what the United Nations is trying to protect us from being wealthy. 
That's what the United Nations is protecting us from. Just, you know, be careful out there, guys. Now, Sam Bankman fried. Oh, this dude, he pissed a bunch of people off yesterday. And if you want to know why, it's because of this. Crypto Potato, Chayanka Decca is writing this one. FTX CEO Sam Bankman fried shares his position on crypto regulations. He posted a draft of a set of standards to create clarity and protect customers as the U.S. awaits full federal regulatory regimes. While highlighting the significance of regulatory oversight and customer protection, SBF said there needs to be an open economy where peer-to-peer transfers, code, validators, etc. are presumptively free. He believes establishing standards is necessary until regulation hit the scene to help inform and protect customers. SBF's guidelines. The draft deems block lists as the correct approach to sanctions compliance on blockchain environments, while enabling all transfers could potentially facilitate significant financial crimes. SBF believes maintaining a block list containing illicit addresses is a good balance in preventing such crimes. Otherwise, they could allow peer-to-peer commerce, oh my God, provided that they don't engage with sanctioned entities. Right there is a chilling effect. OFAC, or a responsible actor, should also keep a real-time updated on-chain list of sanctioned addresses to ensure crypto entities avoid transferring funds to or accepting funds from them. Additionally, SBF suggested the need to cure the recipient address if flagged funds from sanctioned addresses are unilaterally sent to it. Meanwhile, trusted actors in the digital asset ecosystem should have their on-chain list of addresses that are suspected to be associated with financial crime. Oh my God, this guy's just such, he's such a tool. To reduce the impact of hacks, SBF stated that major trusted parties should add addresses associated with security breaches to their public list of suspicious addresses to enable centralized and decentralized protocols to promptly freeze associated ones. A negotiation between the hacker and the affected protocol takes place during certain security breaches, while SBF said a deal that involves offering a generous bug bounty to the hacker for identifying the vulnerability in the protocol does not sound bad. He argued that such negotiation is often stressful and contentious in practice. He proposed a new community standard, the 5-5 standard, to protect the customer funds from, (coughs) sorry, to protect the customer funds above everything else. For the FTX CEO, decentralized finance has been the trickiest area to get right. He proposed a rough regulatory heuristic to use with the space that involves no oversight for uploading code to the blockchain. The validator's core duty is to correctly validate blocks and not to judge or police them. But the requirement of license and registration comes into the picture, whole hosting a website that provides a U.S. retail front end for decentralized protocols, as well as marketing DeFi products to retail investors in the country. Weighing in on the complex nature of the space, SBF said, quote, figuring out how and where DeFi and things tangentially related to DeFi do and don't fit into regulatory contexts is a hard problem and one on which there is not yet firmly settled thought, end quote. 
Until there is an explicit regulatory framework, Bankman-Fried underscored the need for up-to-date public information and audits to confirm that dollar-backed stablecoins are, in fact, backed by the dollar. He suggested the KYC of the trades or traders participating in the on-ramp, off-ramp process. The premise of the sanctions section in the crypto billionaire was not welcomed by many. Some contended that the sanctions set up in the guidelines removes the entire value of Web3. Another user argued that the proposed draft would steer the space, which was meant to bring financial revolution into an already existing financial system. Bankless founder Ryan Sean Adams believes the, believes the draft states DeFi should be OFACT, on-chain freezing should be normalized, and DeFi's front-end requirements to register as a broker-dealer is not reasonable and would end up eliminating the United States from the crypto race. He went on to further say the solution isn't to apply the old CFI rules to DeFi, the regulation should approach DeFi from first principles. And this caused BitBoy to blow a gasket. Oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, let's run the numbers. So here they are, CNBC Futures and Commodities Oil up 0.65%, least West Texas Intermediate is, uh, $85.06 a barrel. Brent North Sea, likewise up almost a full point, $93.27. Natural gas, though, I don't know what the hell's going on with natural gas, but it's down a full seven points, $4.97 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline, however, is up scant to $2.64 uh, gallon metals doing well, uh, 1.23% to the upside for gold, $1,657 per ounce. Silver is up 2.2%. Platinum is up 1.87%. Copper is up 1.95%. However, palladium has fallen almost a full four points. Agricultural mutual uh, futures are mostly up. Uh, rough rice is down uh, one point, but everything else is up. The biggest winner today is cotton, 2.27% to the upside. Dow is up 1.85%. S&P is up 1.58. NASDAQ up 1.25. S&P mini is up 1.34. Uh, Bitcoin holding its own again, $19,132.47 with uh 200 no with who was the well, what was traded oh 998,000 BTC have exchanged hands in the last 24 hours uh 3.71 BTC is the average transaction value median transaction value is 0.023 BTC right around 442 bucks block time is 9 minutes and 17 seconds and we have a 0 0.07 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 12.09 BTC taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours with a 2.58% drop in hash rate. We're at 261 exahashes per second. Uh, your shitcoin indicator is Doge, $0 0.059 or 5.9 United States pennies. 
Now we have 522 transactions waiting on a single block to clear. We have a $367 billion market cap, which is 3.36% of gold's market cap. And you can get 11.6 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,185,435.92. And 5,044 of those are wrapped up in the Lightning Network valued at $96.5 million being run over 17,183 nodes sporting 82,388 payment channels. Torp capacity percentage has finally increased a bit. 67.7% of the Lightning Network is run over Tor's 12,255 nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news. You can use low hash price, soaring energy costs, spell a tough third quarter for Bitcoin miners. Gareth Jenkinson, Cointelegraph. <clears throat> energy problems in North America and Europe and prevailing market conditions have spelled yet another bleak quarter for Bitcoin mining operators on both continents. The latest Q3 mining report from Hashrate Index has highlighted several factors that have led to a significantly lower hash price and higher cost to produce one Bitcoin. Hash price is the measurement used by the industry to determine the market value per unit of hashing power. This is measured by dividing the dollar per terahash per second per day and is influenced by changes in mining difficulty in the price of Bitcoin itself. As Hashrate Index reports, Bitcoin's hash price was afforded some reprieve in the middle of the third quarter as heat waves during the American summer led to a drop in hash rate, which corresponded with a slight BTC price recovery. However, the price of Bitcoin dropped below $20,000 once again, and hash rates climbed to new all-time highs in September, leading to the hash price slipping closer to all-time lows. Minor profit margins were further threatened by rising energy costs in North America and Europe, the latter has been particularly hard hit by a combination of mismanaged renewable energy policies, underinvestment in oil and gas, nuclear plant decommissionings in Russia's war with Ukraine, and that has sent energy prices sky high. American miners have had to contend with the average cost of industrial electricity increasing 25% from $75 a megawatt hour to $94 a megawatt hour from July 2021 to July 2022. This has also had an effect on hosting service providers that are increasing their power prices in hosting contracts. As hash price has dropped, some mining operators with mid-range equipment are facing down reaching break-even cost margins. In the past, retail miners have either abandoned or sold rigs that are no longer profitable to mine on. Liquidating these assets is also becoming more difficult as Bitcoin mining values have been in decline throughout this year. Rig prices dropped significantly in May and June, but flattened in August and September, according to the report, while the picture is still bleak. Quote, old gen machines like the S9 experienced a precipitous drawdown at the end of June amid Bitcoin's freefall to 17,500. With mining economics in the dumpster, the S9 and similar rigs have become unviable except in the cheapest of energy markets, end quote. 
Publicly traded mining firms have also faced increased pressure with increasing interest rates and greater difficulty acquiring lines of credit. This has led to some firms turning to equity fundraising, which has the downside of diluting shareholders at lower stock prices. However, these at-the-market offerings allow for quick capital raises, which can help fund continued <clears throat> expansion and operating costs throughout the ongoing bear market. Miners have also had to sell BTC holdings in order to keep production going in 2022. However, this rate has slowed progressively through the third quarter and public miners have sold fewer BTC than their monthly production in August and September for the first time since May. Hash rate index also cautioned that Q3 could be a precursor for more rough times for the mining industry with the potential for further distressed asset sales, bankruptcies, and minor capitulation as the year comes to a close. So this is ongoing effects from the Terra Luna ecosystem meltdown. I, I'm, I'm calling it, I, you know, sure, there's probably other factors involved, but I, I guarantee you the majority of this is, is the fallout from the whole Terra Luna mess. It is what it is, guys. It is what it is. But, you know, be aware, <clears throat> we have been here before. If you're brand new, you know, like you bought in at, you know, I don't know, let's say you bought in at 64000 or, you know, 55000 as it was going down or, you know, even in the 40s and the 30s. We've been here before. If you've never seen it, well, welcome to crypto, but, or welcome to, sorry, welcome to Bitcoin. But I guarantee you this has happened before and it will happen again. You, this is not for the faint of heart, okay? This is not something that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say that you should just exit all fiat at once and buy nothing but Bitcoin and just live there. I personally do not believe that, which means that yes, I'm short Bitcoin, but I also live in a very real world. Okay, I'm not saying that people like Parker Lewis are delusional, they're, they're not. And he is like, as far as I know, Parker Lewis is one of those guys from Unchained Capital that is 100% Bitcoin only and more power to him. And I hope he can prove to us <clears throat> just how well it works. But for the time being, I have one foot in the fiat world and I have one foot in the Bitcoin world. I've been that way ever since I got into this game, right? And it's not really as much of a hedge as much as until I can start paying like a moving company to move my house in flat Bitcoin, then it becomes more difficult. So what, what am I trying to do to fix that? I am starting to ask vendors if you take Bitcoin. Have you, do you tell, like I went into go get some CBD gummies the other day. And the first thing I asked her was, do you take Bitcoin yet? And she's like, no, no, we don't. And I go, well, I'm going to go over here to this ATM machine and I'm going to pay a, like, it, like, I think it's a $3 fee to get 60 bucks worth of cash out to buy a couple of bags of gummies with, right? $3 fee on that. A $3 fee, if you didn't listen to me, it's a $3 fee to get 60 bucks. Do the math, right? I could have just given her Bitcoin through the Lightning Network via a QR code and it would have been done. And it would have been, it would have just been done, 
But no, no, no. The real world basically sucks. <laughs> we made it that way through our apathy. I've, I've gone down that road before. I won't rehash it here. But it, it still exists. It still impacts us. It still does mean things to us. And the only way to really fight that is with their, you know, right now is with their own bullshit currency. So yes, I have some fiat currency that I have yet to convert into Bitcoin. The more I go down this road, the more and more I convert into Bitcoin, but I, I have to be responsible because I exist in the real world. I don't exist in the metaverse. So just, you know, if you hate me for that, I, I, I understand. I get it. it it's okay. Well, I'll, I'll survive. Bitcoin now less volatile than the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ for the first time since 2020. Tim Hockey tells us more from Bitcoin, oh no, I'm sorry, from Decrypt.co. Amid economic chaos, Bitcoin is holding relatively stable. Well, for now, at least. Bitcoin's 20-day realized volatility, a metric that measures the daily changes in the price of Bitcoin, has fallen below both NASDAQ and the S&P 500's level for the first time in two years, according to findings published this week by crypto data provider Kaiko. In layman's terms, Bitcoin price has been a lot less volatile over the last three weeks. Just before the 20-day period in question, volatility in both crypto markets and equities had hit a 40-year high. Hot inflation readings from the United States economy has driven many to expect the Federal Reserve's terminal rate, the peak of their interest rate hikes, may still be far off. The Fed already hiked rates by 0.75% three times this year, the first of which was the steepest single hike since 1994. Kaiko also says the gap between 30-day and 90-day volatility readings for both Bitcoin and equities has been shrinking since the second half of September. Both the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 are down around 10% since the start of that month. This is the first time since October of 2020 that Bitcoin has been less volatile than the NASDAQ. It's also the first time since August 2020 that the world's largest cryptocurrency has been more stable than the S&P 500. Kaiko's director of research, Clara Medee, told Decrypt via email that BTC volatility had been falling since early July, which is around the time when the industry began to take stock of the liquidity crisis that emerged in the wake of Terra's collapse. Crypto trade volumes have held flat despite low volatility, which suggests trading activity has remained consistent. On the other hand, stocks have seen volatility increases due to a range of factors, including high interest rates, an appreciating dollar, persistent inflation, the energy crisis, and war, she added. She also said that despite its current $19,000 price, a far cry from its November all-time high of $69,000, Bitcoin now appears to be acting as sort of a buffer against macroeconomic uncertainties. Quote, the divergence in market activity for the two asset classes suggests cryptocurrencies are more resistant to the recent volatility-inducing macro events. Bitcoin has at times been closely correlated with stocks, although crypto advocates would rather it wasn't because it was designed to be an alternative to traditional financial investments. However, data from Into the Blocks Correlation Matrix records records Bitcoin's current correlation coefficient to both NASDAQ and the S&P 500 as around 0.3. The closer this figure is to zero, 
the less correlation there is. The closer to one, the more markets are correlated. So in short, Bitcoin is really starting to decouple from stocks this autumn. The question is, will it stay that way? So yeah, we've been taught, we've been hearing word about that for the last couple of weeks that Bitcoin is in fact, has lost a lot of its volatility and it has, but it, you know, that just makes for a really boring market. I'll take boring. I really will. I mean, $19,100. I can do that. I mean, I'll just buy that. You know, I, I buy every, I buy every week. It's on auto, it's on auto draft, right? I might, you know, the, the family companies that I'm part of, we buy every week. It's a set amount and we buy it every week and we've been doing it since last Christmas, at least for the, uh, for the family companies is when I finally was able actually the Christmas before last, I think was when I finally was able to get people to, you know, my, my people to agree, okay, we'll cut, you know, 5% of, you know, monthly income and we'll use that to buy Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm, I'm good with all this, honestly. <clears throat> now, how the New York Times could have used lightning to make millions of dollars. Uh, this is an opinion piece by Ram or Ram, a Bitcoin magazine, to understand why the New York Times could have made so much more money last year. It's worth appreciating micropayments in the context of the Lightning Network. We usually think of Lightning. Oh, hold on for a second. Make sure. Oh, sorry. My phone has been just blowing up this morning. I don't know why. We usually think of Lightning as a Bitcoin scalability solution as it makes everyday payment in Bitcoin viable. Essentially, Lightning is a protocol built on top of the main Bitcoin network. And here, transaction costs are significantly lower and payment speeds are much, much faster. In fact, Lightning is significantly more efficient than even Visa or MasterCard. And Lightning still has plenty of room to grow. While this technology is still maturing, for example, with regards to security, privacy, and adoption, it demonstrates very strong network effects. As more people start using it, the cheaper and faster payments will get. And remember, they cost merely a fraction of a penny already. One of the most exciting things this opens up is micropayments. There has not been sufficient talk about how exciting this prospect is, both economically and culturally. It's impossible to send very tiny amounts of money in our traditional centralized payment systems. Depending on which service you're using and where you're sending to, you won't even be able to send 10 cents digitally. And this is for very good reasons. Very tiny amounts don't make sense because the transaction cost itself might be larger than the amount that you're sending. Lightning, on the other hand, makes it possible to send these small amounts digitally. And since it's a technology that exhibits network effects, costs will drop further as more people start using it. You can digitally send fractions of a penny today via Lightning, and you'll probably be able to send even smaller amounts in the future. Now, let's get to the New York Times to understand why the NYT could make 50% more from Lightning maturing. Let's do some simple math. One, the publication made $76 million in adjusted operating profit in the second quarter of 2022. Let's estimate that the New York Times made around $25 million in profit in one month in 2021. There were 125 million monthly global unique visitors to the NewYorkTimes.com in 2021. It had about 9 million subscribers in the third quarter of 2022. 
Hence, let's extrapolate that on average, there were 115 million visitors every month to the New York Times who were non-subscribers in 2021. These non-subscribers can read a maximum of five articles every month. Of these 115 million visitors, some read two articles and some read the maximum of five. On average, each of these visitors ends up enjoying one article every month. And since it's so easy and seamless to send tiny amounts of money to the New York Times, thanks to Lightning, every visitor could end up sending 10 cents that month. So that month, the New York Times would have ended up making $11.5 million more. That's 46% more in profit. The math is elementary and imperfect, but it gets the point across. Micropayments open up a ton of potential and their benefits don't just end at helping content creators. They can also perpetuate cultural shifts and more, and I've put forth some examples below. Regular people being charitable. I think that for many folks, even if they're struggling themselves, they'd be happy to give a penny to the disabled kid playing the clarinet on the street if such giving was both convenient and possible. Tipping bus drivers who are really nice to you. Teachers sending tiny amounts of money to students in the classroom who raise their hands and try to answer questions. Kids who genuinely try to get one cent, even if their answer is wrong. If a kid gets it correct, congratulations, he gets five cents. Remember, teachers giving chocolates to students who got questions, right? <laughs> well, that can't turn up with chocolates all the time, so yeah, micropayments may be viable substitutes. You might end up seeing a lot more hands in the air. So now, try to extrapolate how many industries and sectors such micropayments could benefit and the subsequent contributions to GDP. Imagine New York Times employees seeing their salaries go up. Imagine them then spending this money on new things, and then imagine the salaries of the people they bought from going up as well. And the process repeats. And here we see economists beloved multiplier effect, which is amazing for the economy. Micropayments prompt spending in a completely new way. So to Bitcoiners, the next time you explain lightning, don't forget to talk about micropayments. It's probably easier to digest than scalability. And to economists skeptical of Bitcoin, I think that you'd love something like this because it encourages spending. So are you getting any softer on Bitcoin yet? <laughs> and they, he ends with this, uh, <clears throat> with this Paul Krugman article. It's a snapshot, uh, the conscience of a, liter of a liberal, Paul, uh, Paul Krugman, who writes, Bitcoin is evil. It's always important and always hard to distinguish positive economics, how things work from normative economics, how things should be. Indeed, on many of the macro issues I've written about, it has been obvious that large numbers of economists can't bring themselves to make that distinction. They dislike activist governments on political grounds, and this leads them to make really bad arguments about why fiscal stimulus can't work and monetary stimulus will be disastrous. I don't, by the way, think that this effect is symmetric, although people like Robert Lucas were quick to accuse people like Christy Romer of fabricating arguments to support big government agendas that didn't actually happen. Yeah, that's part of this, this article way back in 2013, guys, named Bitcoin is evil from Paul Krugman. Yeah, and I didn't read that article because there was a paywall in front of it.
<laughs> but this is the whole thing that I've been talking about for a long time is micropayments and paywalls for traditional news media outlets. Because let's face it, Newsweek, New York Times, they're all going the way of the dodo. The only saving grace that they have, the only potential way that they can navigate this new age is to do what they have always been doing, except they used to do it better. They used to actually have real news that wasn't bought and paid for by Pfizer. But that aside, if they would just go report news, write articles, I will buy them at 25 cents a piece, but I don't want your subscription. I don't want to read everything Newsweek has. I don't, I'm not interested in every article New York Times has. But if somebody tweets an article from like Business Insider or the Financial Times, one in 10 times, I may catch it to where I can read it for free because I get, you know, I've gone over the month and now I've got like, you know, another two or three articles that I can read. But if a paywall comes up and it asks me, hey, I need your credit card, you need to buy a subscription, I need your credit card and where you live and your phone number, I'm not gonna do it. And even if I didn't care about the information going out, I don't wanna spend the time getting, finding my wallet, giving my credit card stuff, I don't wanna do it. And these guys are losing out on millions and millions of dollars if they would just say, hey, we're gonna take lightning payments Here's your lightning paywall, have at it, read everything, read one thing, we don't care. And it just goes to their light, New York Times lightning, uh, lightning node. It's, it's, uh, why they don't do this already is beyond me, but we've got Kraken back in the news. Kraken has joined a list of crypto firms that are going to comply with EU sanctions against Russia. Will McCurdy tells us more, decrypt.co. Crypto exchange Kraken confirmed that it will be conforming to the European Union's new sanctions package. Kraken complies with the legal and regulatory requirements in all jurisdictions that we operate in, a Kraken spokesperson told Decrypt. Since the EU's announcement, we have been working to make the changes needed to comply with the latest package of sanctions against Russia. The spokesperson did not comment on whether Russian users had been banned outright from the platform. Kraken's announcement comes after the EU put into play its newest sanctions package aimed at punishing Russia for its aggression against Ukraine on October the 6th. The latest sanctions enforce a blanket ban on all payments flowing from the EU to Russia, whereas previous EU sanctions merely cap transactions at 10,000 euro. The ban comes as a wave of other crypto firms move to deny access to users in the country joining blockchain.com, crypto.com, and sadly, local Bitcoins, who all announced that they are set to shut access last week. The news flies in the face of prior statements made by Kraken earlier this year, which said it would keep Russian accounts open, dubbing a ban unfair to average Russians who may oppose the war in Ukraine. In March, former Kraken CEO and co-founder Jesse Powell told CNBC that denying Russian users their account access was a pretty extreme measure that is far beyond turning off someone's access to their music streaming service or their photo sharing app. Kraken is currently the fourth largest crypto exchange in the world, according to CoinGecko, recording around $356 million in trading volume in the last 24 hours. So Kraken joins the list of all the rest of the people in the world that 
uh, that are going to ban Russian accounts simply for being Russian. All right, look, you want to ban Putin's account? Fine, whatever. I don't care. You want to ban all the general's account? You want to ban everybody that has something to do with Russian government? Okay. Although I'm sure there's people in the Russian government that really don't want this war either, but be that as it may, why punish the citizenry? I mean, I mean, do you have proof that the citizenry is is engaging in armed conflict against Ukraine? Now, I've said it before on many occasions, most people in most countries, they just want to fall in love, get married and go fishing, have kids, buy a house, live a life, make something better, make something pretty. That's what most people want to do. I believe, I really, truly wholeheartedly believe that. I don't believe that everybody wants to go to war with everybody else, but once somehow or another, governments do. Governments are the biggest perpetrator of war that the globe's ever seen and ever will see. People, generally speaking, get along with other people. I saw a, a picture of a map of a bunch of wolf, uh, wolf ranges. So you got a pack of wolves, right? And, you know, all these wolves have been tagged with radio transmitters that, you know, uh, coordinate their GPS locations on a big map. And over the past few years, they've been looking at five, it was either five or six groups, separate groups of wolves. And they all respect each other's boundaries. You can see it on the map. You can see where they move and they stay basically in these same ranges and they rarely overlap into, in, into the other wolf packs ranges. Even dogs know how to keep their shit straight. Humans, on the other hand, not so sure, but that's going to do it for the morning roundup. We could use a joke. Dad says jokes. My friend drowned. So for his funeral, we put a life preserver on his coffin. It's what he would have wanted. I have boostograms. I do. I have boostograms. Wow. Mr. Man sent 42,069 sats. That's for 2069. I need a podcatcher that keeps track of my streaming sats offline. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this is going to work for you, Mr. Man, but uh, have you looked into Alby, A-L-B-Y? Um, I know that it's got a dashboard that podcasters can use to keep track of all kinds of stuff, and I haven't got mine set up yet, but um, it's possible that it may work that way, honestly. Um, but it's not a podcatcher itself. It's just it's basically just metrics, but... Give that one a shot. Uh, Ptar, 25,000 sats. Boosting to beat the bear. Thank you, bro. Letter 6173 with the striper boost. Best choice to read your daily Bitcoin news. Fatoshi with another 5,000 sats. So, so the doctor says, bad news, you have cancer and you have Alzheimer's. The guy says, well, at least I don't have cancer. Get it? Get, get it? Yeah. <laughs> Another 5,000 from Fatoshi. Ask not what you can do for Bitcoin. Those who champion regulation or reputation. Ask what Bitcoin can do for you. The free. Is that too farty? No, Fatoshi. I don't think that that's too farty. Uh, Jim Leahy, 420 sats. 
Wow, wow. I sent a boostagram to you yesterday for Friday's show. But anyways, it basically said you were part of the reason I started my Bitcoin journey. And for that, I thank you very much. Go Padres. <laughs> Chaka with 300 sats, no message. 222 Satoshis from Armor. We just need Fountain to become the new Spotify. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I do would I would like to see Fountain with the ability for me to fast forward 30 seconds or so by tapping my earbuds like uh, Overcast is able to do. At least that would be really nice. And I, but the reason they don't have it, dude, they're working their ass off in every little thing. When you start thinking about it, what one podcatcher has versus another one, there's a lot of work that goes into that. You, you don't, you, we, I take it for granted that if I'm listening on Overcast, which I haven't actually used for quite a while, I used to just be able to tap my earbuds twice. Like on my right side, I would just tap it twice and I would fast forward 30 seconds. And it was awesome. It was awesome. So, but these little things, they're not so little when you have to implement them. So, you know, we got to give love to Fountain. And the more that we use Fountain as our podcatcher, the more Satoshis get streamed directly to them because they take, I think, one, one Satoshi from everything or in, I don't I can't remember exactly how it works, but they're getting some of the Satoshis that you send me so that they can fund themselves. And I'm 100% good with that because I love the guys over at Fountain. Last one is ElfDub7, 100 sats. Will be interesting to see how the Catholic Bitcoin case plays out. The spiritual saving with Bitcoin case has already been defended, but as you hinted, Catholicism or any denomination in practice is still susceptible to current fiat traits. Doing is always harder than talking. Yeah, that's what I'm, what I was talking about that on Monday, the Catholic uh, monastery, uh, sisterhood of nuns uh, is still a monetary uh, monastery built a church. They did it all with Bitcoin They or built a nice cathedral. They're funding themselves on Bitcoin. It's completely outside of the Vatican bank rails and how they're getting away with it without getting like their diocese uh, yelled at. I don't know, but I guarantee you if they're not getting yelled at for it yet, they probably will because the Catholic church is one of those institutions like the federal reserve where they don't like anything other than what they sanction uh, messing around in their backyard. So anyway, with all that said, have a good weekend and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.